Hey everybody, this is Ruben, and you're listening to Amazing Stories. Oh, hey, Matt, it's me. It's like mm, midnight there? I thought you'd be around. Call me back. Actually, don't worry. No, call me back because I want to talk to you about some stuff. Okay, actually, you know what? I'm going to send these sound files through to you because I have to go out. So I'm just going to throw on a few audio notes and so you know what's what. But call me back. I'm here for another half an hour or so, and I want to hear how your meeting with the witch went. Okay? Cool. Talk to you later. Okay, so hi, it's me. The first thing is a recording of a letter from Charles Dexter Ward to Dr. Willett. This is pretty late on in the relationship, just before Charles was committed to the asylum. I called just now because I wanted to give you some context for how we found this, but I think it should play out up top and then the explanation comes closer to the end of the show, but I'll throw something in later so you know where it goes. I'm going to email you the actual text of the letter, But this recording is George Shepley, the library guy, reading the letter out because I wanted to hear it in a man's voice. And yes, I know what you're thinking. Shut up. So you could use this. I think it's an okay recording. But also, you could get it redone by Justin or someone. Anyway, here it is, and I think it should play out up top. Uh, This is a letter from Charles Dexter Ward to Dr. Willett. It's dated January 26th, 2016. Dear Dr. Willett, the time has come for me to finally be honest with you about what has been happening. You've shown incredible patience with me these past few years, and I know I have not always been the easiest of patience or the most rewarding. I appreciate all the help you have given me. I really thought I was onto something with my research. I thought something amazing, something world-changing would come of it for the good of everyone. I had hoped to show you and my father and everyone else who thought I'd gone mad that I was right all along. Unfortunately, that isn't the case. What I have stumbled on here is something truly terrible, something horrifying. And now I must ask for your help once again. We need to stop this. It feels ridiculous to write these words, and I'm sure it must seem equally ridiculous reading them, but please believe me when I tell you that the future of the world is at stake here. What they did to Joseph Kerwin at the Pawtuxet House needs to happen again as soon as possible. My research and experiments have brought to light a monstrous abnormality. Now, for the sake of all life on this planet, you must help me destroy it. I have left the trailer park forever, and we must destroy the trailer there and everything in it and beneath it. I know I sound crazy, but I promise you I have not been this clear-headed since all this began. It's as if a veil has been lifted suddenly and bright light is shining down, 
showing me everything I have done wrong and the terrible things I have brought into being. Please come to the house on Prospect Street first thing tomorrow. If anyone but me answers the door, go straight to the police. Otherwise, we will head out to the trailer park and do what needs to be done. Bring guns and gasoline. I can only imagine how all this sounds. Please, just give me the benefit of the doubt one more time. I hope to see you in the morning. Best, Charles. P.S. Shoot Dr. Allen on sight and dissolve his body in acid. Don't burn it. That's pretty wild, right? But like I say, I think it works really well as a tease, and then we put it into context later. So next, there's a recording I made outside the asylum, and I'm not sure if it's useful or not. I'm standing outside the psychiatric hospital, which was Charles Dexter Ward's home from February 2016 until he vanished without a trace from his room the following March. I thought it might be useful to get a sense of where he was living and how secure his room actually was. Unfortunately, though, this place doesn't allow visitors, except in exceptional circumstances and all our attempts to get an appointment with the warden have been unsuccessful. I can give you a sense of what this place looks like from the outside, though. If you've ever seen the movie Shutter Island, or if you're a fan of the Batman comics, and you can picture Arkham Asylum, we think of those things as being kind of gothic exaggerations of reality. But let me disabuse you of that notion. This building looks exactly like it was the inspiration for those places. It's a big old gothic stone pile, bars on the windows, huge oak front door set into a stone arch. It certainly isn't a place that anyone just walks out of. So that's maybe good for atmosphere or whatever. The warden won't speak to me, and neither will anyone else who works there. I even went and hung out at the bar down the street because I figured the guards and whatnot would come in after their shifts. And a few did come in, but none of them would talk to me. I guess they've been warned off by the warden or someone. Then I got this call that night. The dude didn't give his name, uh, but I'm pretty sure it was one of the guards who I approached in the bar. There's no way to identify him, and so I can't corroborate what he says. You might need to get someone to listen to it and make sure the warden or whoever can't sue us. The guy's using something to disguise his voice, though, which makes it sound pretty cool. Hello? Gotta be fishing. Who's this? You wanted to speak to someone? You work at the psychiatric hospital? My friend was there the night Ward disappeared. You're... Friend. And what did this friend see? Ward was a freak. Freak how? He talked to himself. Is that unusual in a place like that? The person he was talking to wasn't him. I don't know what that... He changed. Physically. The time he was there. His hair got darker. His body shape changed. All right, I don't... Are you saying he lost weight because maybe the food... He I don't understand. The man who disappeared from that cell was not the same man we locked up. Okay. No one is talking about the dust. The dust. My friend was in the room when they discovered the board was missing. He said there was dust everywhere. I don't understand what you mean by... Gray dust, like ash, covering everything. What's the significance of the dust? I don't... Talk to Lyman about this. Who's Lyman? Hello? Hello? 
So obviously the two things I'm into here are this business of him talking to himself, because that came up in the recording we have of Ward with Willett, where they're talking about Ward's dad saying Charles was talking to himself. And this thing about the dust. The guard says there was dust covering everything in the cell, and that's exactly what the cop, Ezra Whedon, said about the room they expected to find Joseph Kerwin's body in. Now, I can't corroborate either of those accounts, and we might never be able to. But this is two separate people who shouldn't know about the other telling a version of the same story. So there's that. And then we get to this Lyman character. Now, I've put a document package together for you, and I'm going to upload it with this audio. One of the things you're going to find in there is a list of employees at the psychiatric hospital at the time Ward disappeared. Willett is on the list, obviously, and I've circled a couple of names who might be our deep throat guard. There's no Lyman there, but Willett is only listed with the hospital as a consultant, and he had a separate practice, which is how come he had Charles as a patient all those years. The place closed down when Willett got arrested, though it doesn't look like he was paying it that much attention in the year before that either. The website is still up, but it just lists Willett and some admin people on the staff list. But I made a couple of calls to find out who covered for Willett when he was away or at hospital or whatever, and sure enough, there's a Dr. Mark Lyman who came in as cover, and it turns out he and Willett went way back. Dr. Lyman? Dr. Lyman? Yes. My name's Kennedy Fisher. I work on a podcast called The Mystery Machine. I don't know it. We're doing a story that involves Dr. Willett, who I believe was a colleague I'm not. I'm sorry. I'm late for an appointment. If I could just take a few moments of your time. I don't have a few moments. Well, then if we could arrange a convenient time. I'm not talking about Willett to you or to anyone. What about Charles Dexter Ward? What about him? What was really going on with him? He was crazy. Is that a technical term? I'm late for an appointment. Dr. Willett's been locked up for the rest of his life because they think he went nuts and stabbed a random stranger. Is that what you think happened? I already said. I'm not talking because about... Because I think it. there's more to it than that. And I'm offering an audience and a chance to get Dr. Willett's side of the story out. I don't know what his side is. You know about his work with Charles Ward. I'm betting you know more than came out after Ward disappeared. You probably don't need that, but I'm throwing it in in case we're running under. So, spoiler alert, Dr. Lyman agreed to a meeting at his place later that evening. All right, cards on the table. I don't know if Jonathan Willett is suffering from a neurological condition or not. He murdered that woman. And whether he believed he was justified, whether a professional would consider him to have been of sound mind at the time, that's still a crime. And, and it's still morally wrong, and I'm not condoning that in any way. Understood. That said, do I think Charles Dexter Ward contributed to the situation Jonathan found himself in? Absolutely, yes, I, I do. I'm... I'm going to need some assurances. Such as? My professional reputation, and not, not to mention the ethics You're of, asking for approval. How you people chop these things around, make what's said sound different out of context. We don't do that. But it's absolutely not a problem for you to hear an edited version of this conversation before it goes out. <clears throat> Jonathan Willett had known Charles Ward for a long time as a patient. Ward had certain behavioral difficulties that were neither particularly unusual nor particularly serious. 
A lot of parents would have relied on a school or a once-a-week counselor to deal with these kind of things. But the Ward family had money, and Charles was their only child, so they engaged Jonathan early and had him sit and talk to Charles twice a week. What kind of behavior... I can't answer that. But I can tell you that Willett was not concerned about Charles until that Sayers woman arrived on the scene. Barbara Sayers. Mm-hmm. She was the school librarian, I believe. And, and Jonathan quickly became concerned that she was exerting an undue influence on Charles Ward in terms of reading material she was allowing him access to. I've seen the reading lists. Well, as you know, Charles Ward was subsequently removed from school and Barbara Sayers became his personal tutor. How did Willett let that happen if he already thought she was a bad influence? She was clever. She persuaded Charles to modify his behavior around his parents to the, to the extent that they thought Sayers was a force for good. On top of that, she persuaded them that Charles was actually some kind of misunderstood savant that the school couldn't cater to. And she pitched herself directly against Willett, and Willett lost, and the wards let him go. I didn't realize that. Oh, yeah. It was only after Sarah Ward's death that Howard brought him back in. By that time, Charles's behavior had escalated well beyond anything anyone could have predicted. Yeah. I remember how shocked Willett was after his first week back. He told me that Charles Ward had grown obsessed with this, uh, this Joseph Kerwin character, the one who died in that siege over at Patuxet. Apparently, he believed he was related to this Kerwin, that Kerwin was some kind of big deal in occult circles, and that there was some kind of great work that Charles was obligated to continue. What kind of work? Well, you have to understand that this is, this is delusional behavior. I mean, you have a potentially fragile young mind that with the correct treatment could be repaired and nurtured. But instead, that mind has been filled with all this nonsense from these witchcraft books he was reading, and, and then that's amplified by whatever this dreadful Sayers woman was telling him. So now, Willett's work is, it's really cut out for him. Charles was apparently uh, conducting experiments, attempting to make contact with something called, uh, I forget what it was called, some old Persian or Syrian... The Kuaya? That, that, that sounds right. Mesopotamian. Whatever. It's a hook on which to hang delusions. I'm sure at this stage, anything would have worked equally well. Willett managed to get rid of Sayers, which was a promising start, but Charles' state of mind had really deteriorated in those years. The downward spiral was incredibly steep. I, uh, I hesitate to mention it because it was hearsay and rumor, but Willett wasn't as quick to dismiss it as he might have been you know about the the grave robbing? Okay, so that's a good break point there. And I'm going to upload some press clippings I found from 2011 and 2012, which detail a spate of desecrations and supposed grave robbings from the local cemeteries here in Providence. As far as I can tell, no one was ever arrested for this, and there's obviously no way we can prove Charles Ward was behind it. I need you to look into this whole Ipkuaya thing. Maybe talk to your witchcraft expert and see if there's anything to do with dead bodies or necromancy or whatever tied into this stuff. Okay, grave robbing. Hmm. Ward was apparently obsessed with this book called the Necronomicon. Oh, okay, the Necronomicon. Yeah, I did some background on this, and it's kind of interesting. It's this book that was supposedly written in, like, 
700 AD, but no one is really solid on whether it ever actually existed. The story is, this guy Abdul al-Hazred, who was known as the Mad Poet of Sana'a, which is in Yemen, went on a kind of pilgrimage to the ruins of the city of Nineveh, which is in Mesopotamia. Nineveh is supposedly the place where Ikuai was from. Anyway, Abdul al-Hazred goes to Nineveh and digs around there and finds who knows what, and then he heads out into the desert, and he spends the next ten years apparently being taught, quote, the secrets of death, which he then goes back to Damascus and distills into this book, which he calls the Necronomicon. But, like I say, no one seems very clear on whether it or even Al-Hazred ever actually existed. The Necronomicon supposedly details methods of raising the dead from essential salts. Essential salts? Mm-hmm. No idea. It's nonsense, obviously. But Ward was obsessed with this book and told Willett that he had found portions of it online and had been sent selections of the text by his followers. He had followers? <laughs> he claimed to have had followers. I can't stress enough that we are talking about a delusional mind here. This is not reportage. But there's a possible link between someone who thinks they can raise the dead and someone robbing graves. Well, that was Jonathan Willett's thinking. Okay. Willett took these concerns to Howard Ward, who was pretty ill by now. Howard tried to intervene, and there was a big fight, and, and as a result, Ward moved all of his supposed research and experiments out of the house. This was when? Uh, maybe 2013. Okay, so this explains something. None of this stuff was in the house on Prospect Street, and it didn't go to the asylum with Ward. No, he certainly wouldn't have been allowed it there. So it got moved to another location. Do we know where? No idea. I, I don't know if Willett knew either. A and that relationship was coming to a head anyway. Before Howard Ward died, Charles managed to persuade him that Willett was no longer helping him, and Howard fired Willett and replaced him with a guy Charles found, uh, a Dr. Allen. Now, I have never heard of Dr. Allen. He's certainly not registered in Rhode Island, and I've never been able to track him down. So Willett got fired again? That's right, and there was no more contact between them. Charles was no longer a minor. His father had died. He could do what he pleased. And Willett didn't hear from Charles again until 2016. I'm going to stress at this point that I was working with Jonathan Willett in 2016, and he was nothing if not of sound mind. A more rational human being you really couldn't hope to meet. But in January 2016, he received a letter from Charles Dexter Ward. I, I never read that letter, but it certainly seems to have disturbed Jonathan. It put the two back in touch again, and I believe it led directly to Ward being incarcerated under Willett's care. Where's that letter now? It'll be with all of Willett's case notes from the hospital. I don't suppose there's any way to get a look at those notes. The warden at the hospital will It would not... be completely improper for you to see Jonathan Willett's private notes. But I can save you the bother of dealing with the warden. The notes aren't there. They came back here with all of Willett's other effects after he was found guilty in London. You have him here? In that box over there. But as I say, it would be completely improper for me to allow you access to them. I understand, but... You no, know, I, uh... I have some calls I need to make. Oh, sorry, I... No, 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 you, you keep your seat. I'll, uh, I'll make the calls from outside.
So that was a pretty clear sign, right? He left me alone with the box. I couldn't take anything, but I found the letter and I took a scan of it on my phone. And I found a few other things. Entries from Willett's journals while Ward was in the asylum, but I haven't had a chance to go through that stuff yet. The line in the letter that was really bugging me was this one. I have left the trailer park forever and we must destroy the trailer there and everything in it and beneath it. That trailer park must have been where Charles moved his experiments and all his research to when his dad made him leave Prospect Street. So, finding that would be a smart move. In the meantime, though, and you're going to love this, I'd asked Ezra Whedon, the cop, if there was any way he could fill in the gaps with Barbara Sayers for me. I wanted to know where she went after the Joseph Kerwin siege. Meeting with Ezra Whedon at the Kingsport Diner. Hey. Uh, How are you doing? I'm good. I got some coffee on the way. I didn't know if you wanted breakfast. (laughs) I'm good. You have the corned beef hash, you'll be better. You're recording? I am. All right. So, a buddy of mine has a kid in the FBI. You might want to leave that off. Yeah, don't worry. You want me to go again so you have something to start with? You've done this before, huh? (laughs) We got taped a lot back in the day. Okay. So, I have a source who managed to fill in the blanks on this Barbara Sayers character. That's great. She left Rhode Island around the same time as the Kerwin siege, which we pretty much had guessed. And from there, it looks like she was traveling around the country, working here and there. She's in New Orleans at one point, then Portland, Oregon, down to San Francisco, then out to Nevada and Taos, New Mexico. These places have anything in common? Maybe, maybe not. I could mount a theory that there's some kind of occult connection. But equally, if you showed me the map and told me she was selling insurance, I'd buy that too. We lose her in 1985. Pick her up again in New York in 1986. And then from there, she flies to Paris, France. What's she doing there? No idea. My sauce has her entry stamped and that's it. If she's working, it's off the books and there's no record of it. From Paris, she moves east across Europe and into North Africa and the Middle East. What's she doing? Her movements there. If this was later, she'd be flagged for maybe being involved in terrorist training camps. She's in Istanbul, then Morocco and Algeria, across into Egypt, and then up to Damascus in Syria, Iraq, and that's before all the unpleasantness, obviously. Although even back then, it wasn't a hot tourist destination. She's looking for the Necronomicon. The what now? I have coffee, and I have the hash for this. Ah, that's me. Can I get you some breakfast? I'm good, thank you. Not a problem. Enjoy. The Necronomicon is a book. This trapper's her looking for a book? Huh. Must have been a loadout for her when Amazon started up. It may not just be the book. She may have been on some kind of pilgrimage. The soldiers of Ipkuaya. Ipkuaya was some kind of sorcerer or wizard back in Mesopotamia in like 600 BC. Oh, okay. That's kooky. Next solid hit, she's in London, 1987. Again, if she's working, it's not official. If she's not working, I don't know where her money is coming from. But in 1990, she does get a job. Doing what? Well, who wouldn't want an escaped cultist and certified lunatic looking after their kid? So wait, she was... she was... 
she was a nanny. If you can believe such a thing. Someone was not doing a great job on the background checks there. Do we know who that someone was? Yeah. Family had a daughter got in the family way. She moved back in with Mommy and Daddy, and they hired our Miss Sayers to help out. Am I saying this right? Tilling... Tillinghast? That was the family name. The kid's mom is called Emma Tillinghast. Kid is Lucy. Barbara Sayers stays with them until 1992, and then Emma Tillinghast marries a guy named Robert Hawthorne. Kid's name is changed for convenience sake. To Lucy Hawthorne. Barbara Sayers was Lucy Hawthorne's nanny. But then when the marriage happens, Sayers' services are no longer required. She heads back home, settles back here in Providence, the dust having well and truly settled. She enrolls at Miskatonic University as a mature student studying ancient languages, which I guess tallies with her looking for this book you mentioned. And then the next thing we have is her taking the job of school librarian in 2003. And the rest is history. I'm back at the city records office, hoping that Alice might have some record of Charles Dexter Ward owning a trailer and... Okay, so that's where the batteries ran out of the recorder. And no, I didn't notice, and I kept on talking for like another five minutes. So, you know, that's deeply professional of me. Anyway, Alice struck gold. Charles Dexter Ward did own a trailer in a place called the Devil's Reef Trailer Park. I have no idea if the trailer's still there or if Ward's stuff is still in it, but that's where I'm heading now. But I'm wondering why you haven't called me back. Hey, it's me again. Where are you? I'm hoping you've just fallen asleep or something, but would you give me a call or a text because I'm getting worried. Um, I've compiled what I have and I've laced it through with audio notes so you'll know where everything is. I'm going to upload it now, then I'm heading out because I think I might have found where Charles Ward was keeping all his stuff. Anyway, get in touch as soon as you get this. It's weird not hearing from you. Okay then. Call me. Bye. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.